0: You're listening to ABC News Radio.
1: Welcome to the Weekly Post, where we take a look back at some of the stories which made headlines this week. Hello, I'm Ali Crew. Coming up... I, Scott John Morrison,
0: do swear that I will well and truly serve the people of Australia... In the offices of Prime Minister and Minister for the Public Service, so
1: help me Scott Morrison is sworn in as Prime Minister at a ceremony in Canberra.
0: I'm honoured and very proud to be elected the 21st leader of the Australian Labor Party. I understand the responsibility that I've been given.
1: Anthony Albanese confirmed as the new Federal Labor Party leader and...
2: We have decided to increase the national minimum wage by 3%. The new national minimum wage will be $740.80 per week, or $19.49 per hour.
1: The Fair Work Commission President Justice Ian Ross announces an increase to the minimum wage. That and more coming up on this edition of The Weekly Post. Scott Morrison was sworn in as Prime Minister this week and wasted no time in appointing a record seven women in Cabinet, including the first ever female Agriculture Minister, Bridget McKenzie. But for the first time in years, neither the Liberal nor Labor parties has a woman in a leadership role. The coalition is again headed up by Scott Morrison and his Deputy Nationals Leader Michael McCormack. While the Labor Party, which had Tanya Plibersek as Deputy Leader before the election, now has a male leadership team of Anthony Albanese and Richard Miles. Queensland Labor Senator Clare Moore is a founding member of EMILY's List an international body dedicated to the promotion and representation of women in politics.
3: It's really important to see that so many strong women are now in the Liberal leadership team and the important thing is it's a team. It's a leadership team and I believe seven women in the Cabinet and more women in the outer ministry. Um, that is really important for our nation.
4: Do you think that that would have occurred had there not been this discussion and even debate before the federal election and of the months leading up to it in fact about more women in Parliament?
3: Look, it's hard to know what if, but in terms of having the discussion, I think that's always important, and it was really bad in Australia when you made comparisons across the world. We were falling behind with the number of women in the then government in senior positions, so I think that debate did have an impact. I think that people would look seriously at the skills and the people who are being elected, and they have to be matched up, and we need to see a parliament that reflects our community, and our, our community demands more equality.
4: Let's take a look at the other side of the political divide, the Labour Party, which has long criticised the lack of women in the coalition government, now said of course to have a male leadership team, that's courtesy of the the factional discussions Mm -hmm. that take place in that party, but -hmm. but what does that say about the party itself?
3: Well I think it's important to look at the word team, and it's not just the two leader and deputy leader positions that constitute the team so I think that's a really important point we have to ensure that the whole team is part of the decision making but I think it is an issue for women in our party to see that and now it's up to the Labor team to rebuild that trust and to ensure that we do have equality in our decision making and we make sure that Labor gets that message out.
4: And I know you keep talking about a team but let's face Mm. it when Julie Bishop and Tanya Plibersek were both deputies they really became part of the face of those particular teams.
3: Absolutely, and women in those positions are important, but I actually feel very strongly about in Parliament that you have to have women across all the ministry positions and that builds that team environment.
4: You spoke earlier about Australia being far behind other countries around mm. the world as mm. far as women in Parliament uh, go, goes. Why has it taken us so long to be dragged <laughs> what seems to be kicking and screaming to this particular uh, point?
3: Uh, that's a discussion and debate that will continue but it is something that we question because we are we have a strong nation of women. We have a strong nation that will at equal rights and having people in, in, who share decision making and it has been a concern i think to see that across the board in politics uh, this has been an area where we need to have more effort and to reinforce the fact that politics is a job it is not a vocation it's not something special women have skills men have skills and we need all those skills in our politicians
4: What do you think it says to young people in Australia who perhaps aspire to be politicians that it's so tough as a woman to get ahead?
3: Well... It's again, you know, politics is tough, but then are other professions, we just have to ensure that young people see politics as an important role and something that has benefit to them, their families and the community. I think sometimes, and the debate has been going on, that people have seen the way politicians are treated, they've seen the behaviours, they've seen the rhetoric, they've seen the, the personal attacks. I think... This is a wider issue for our community. I really think we have to rebuild the trust in the system, the respect in the system, and to make people think that this is a role that they can do and that they can make that decision. That's not going to be easy.
4: I don't think so either. Do you think, though, finally, that a 50% representation of women in either party can be achieved on a a regular long-term basis without quotas?
3: I think that we have taken a long time to get to the stage that we're at, and I've always said that if you can't do it through natural attrition, which I love that term, you have to seriously look at whether there's a role for quotas, for targets, to ensure that we can achieve equality.
4: But are you, at this point in time, fairly heartened by what's occurred?
3: heartened. Um, in some ways I think some of our hearts are still broken after the results of last
4: week. I'm talking about women in, in politi- political roles.
3: I think so. I, I think so. I think the, the change in the government position is really good and I think that will, when we see that reflected in decisions, when we see that reflected in people looking at what's going on, that is a positive step.
1: Queensland Labor Senator Claire Moore speaking to ABC News Radio's Sandy Aloisi. The Fair Work Commission has moved to increase the national minimum wage. The 3% increase will see around 2 million workers earn an extra $21.60 a week. It's lower than last year's 3.5% increase and takes the minimum wage to $740.80 a week or $19.49 an hour. It's more than employers would have liked, but unions say it still doesn't go far enough. Economist Dr Jim Stanford is the director of the Centre for Future Work – he says low-wage workers are effectively living in poverty.
5: There's no doubt that uh, wages in Australia, especially at the lower end of the labour market, are, uh, are not enough to pay for the basic necessities of life. And what's more, in the last uh, several years, uh, since about 2012 or 2013, wages have been growing at the slowest rate since the Second World War. So uh, it's, a, it's a terrible problem in the world of wages. And I believe the Fair Work Commission should have done more with its announcement today.
6: Once again, it is attempted uh, to uh, strike a balance to, to walk down the middle of the recommendations, if you like. What about the other side of the argument, that increased wages might hurt small businesses, forcing them to lay off workers? Is that a legitimate concern?
5: Well, the irony is yeah, you hear that argument the most from small retail shops and cafes and restaurants. And those are the businesses that depend the most on consumers having money in their wallets to spend on that stuff. There's no other sector of the economy that's more directly dependent on workers' purchasing power than the retail and hospitality industries. Yet, ironically, it's their lobbyists who were calling for zero increase in the minimum wage. Uh, I think they're shooting themselves in their own foot with that argument. There's nothing that gets uh, the economy going better than people having money to spend.
6: We have heard it in the past, as you say. Is there any concrete evidence of that actually happening, of people being laid off in large numbers?
5: No, there isn't. Uh, In fact, uh, there's abundant evidence, uh, both in Australia and internationally, that steady, consistent increases in the minimum wage do not undermine employment. Uh, they found very small relationship. In fact, if anything, you may see a positive impact on employment from a higher minimum wage precisely because You're boosting consumer spending power, and consumer spending, after all, is half of our total GDP. So uh, it's a crucial engine for economic growth to put money in people's
6: pockets. Employers in those sectors like retail and hospitality you mentioned uh, might express dismay, but I guess the election result meant that those reductions in penalty rates will stay. So should they be too upset?
5: You know, the uh, retail and hospitality employers promised that if their penalty rates for Sundays and holidays were cut, they would hire thousands of new workers. Well, we've got two years of evidence now, and it's uh, absolutely a false promise. Uh, In fact, the retail sector in particular uh, has been one of the worst parts of Australia's whole economy uh, in terms of job creation. And even industry lobbyists uh, are acknowledging the penalty cuts didn't create any new work at all. So It's a pretty hollow victory. The new government is going to go ahead with those cuts. It just means a little bit less spending power in an economy that's already weak.
6: This decision does have flow-on effects for uh, people on awards as well. How much of an impact might this increase have on low-paid workers? Is it much help?
5: Oh, it it certainly will help, but it isn't enough. About Almost one in four Australian employees depend directly or indirectly on this decision today. Uh, Of course, the number of people who work for the bare minimum is is relatively small, but all of the awards rates are set in relation to that minimum. So you've really seen about one in four Australians today get a 3% pay rate, and as I mentioned, that's not enough. On the other hand, it's much better than you're seeing for non-award workers. If you strip out the impact of the minimum wage changes, Um, other wages in the economy are growing even worse, at under 2% a year. Um, So that's why this minimum wage decision is so important. And this will help, but they really could have done much better.
6: The increase might be lower this year, in part because the Commission argued that coming tax cuts will also help boost people's take-home pay. Is that fair?
5: I I don't think that argument holds water uh, at all. First of all, the tax cuts that the new government has announced – are are relatively trivial uh, compared to the annual income of workers. Uh, Secondly, if you're giving up, uh, if your taxes are being cut, you're going to pay for it indirectly because government is going to reduce the services and income supports that taxes pay for. So on a net basis, there's no way that you can argue that tax cuts are somehow going to offset the impact of lower wages. Ultimately, we do need strong annual wage growth to lift our standard of living. Tax cuts can never replace those.
6: But you don't buy the argument that it also has to rest with uh, employers' capacity to pay.
5: I think employers have a, have a strong capacity to pay. Uh, profit share uh, as a proportion of GDP in Australia is near record levels. Uh, the companies that are receiving these profits, unfortunately, are not reinvesting them. By and large, we've seen very weak investment results. In fact, today. The Australian Bureau of Statistics reported another decline in business investment. Uh, So I think we're much better to try and channel that money to the people who spend it, and that is low-income workers. They spend virtually every penny that they receive, and that makes it an especially powerful stimulus for the economy.
1: The Director of the Centre for Future Work Economist, Dr Jim Stanford, speaking to ABC News Radio's Glenn Bartholomew. In the United States, reaction to Robert Mueller's unexpected statement on his investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election was mixed this week. The special counsel used his first public remarks on the inquiry to emphasise that he did not exonerate President Donald Trump, but that charging him with a crime was not an option because of Justice Department rules. Mr Trump called the investigation the greatest presidential harassment in history and tweeted, Case closed. But many Democrats have intensified calls for the president's impeachment. Julia Manchester writes for the political website The Hill in Washington D.C. She says Mr. Muller's statement caught many by surprise.
7: Yeah, it absolutely came out of the blue, and it really came amid ongoing negotiations between Mueller's team and House Democrats to get him to testify before the House Judiciary Committee. But as we know, Robert Mueller is a very private person. He doesn't like to really get into the political fray. So today it was a surprise, but it was kind of, you know, very much in his character to say that he was retiring from public life and that he would not be testi- testifying before Congress. So we effectively shut the door on that. But in addition to that, he did not necessarily exonerate President Trump or say that he didn't commit a crime. In fact, he said that. If um, his team had any clear-cut reason to say that the president did not commit a crime, they would have said so. So he effectively punches this entire issue to Congress and that has left House Democrats and House Republicans at first to deal with this issue and to whether to proceed with these investigations and ultimately impeachment. We've seen that numerous House Democrats, including um, Chairman, House uh, Judiciary Chairman Jared Nadler, has floated the idea of pursuing impeachment. So it'll be up to Speaker Pelosi to see how she wants to proceed on this issue of impeaching impe- the president, because although the president could very well be impeached in the House, Once it gets the Republican-controlled Senate, it effectively hits a dead end.
0: It's also been observed, hasn't it, that uh, this is good for the Democrats because they're in the middle of choosing their presidential nominee, so to speak, and a lot of the candidates uh, use this as fodder to beat the president with. But uh, there has been a warning, too, that uh, if the... Democrats persist with this. They could be in a historic situation where Bill Clinton uh, was facing impeachment too, and the Republicans pushed that and they they lost heavily at the subsequent uh, presidential election
7: One hundred percent. I think the American people, if you look at various public opinion pollings, they're not in favor of going through forward with impeachment, and I think if there's a lot of fatigue. Surrounding the Mueller investigation. Remember, this has lasted two years and has really sucked up a lot of oxygen within the American news cycle and with the American discourse. And I think Americans are really looking forward to, and you can see this, like I said in polling, um, focusing on issues such as healthcare in the economy, infrastructure, and immigration in many cases. Um, however, you saw that today with this Mueller's um, press conference, a lot of Democratic candidates, whether it was Pete, uh, Pete Buttigieg, Cory Booker, South South moulton they all essentially came out and said that, you know, it, it is reasonable to move forward with impeachment at this time. However, they need to proceed caution because when, you know, we saw this in the 90s during Bill Clinton's impeachment, you know, impeachment is, a, I think, a very hard uh matter for a country to go through. I mean, it is essentially, you know, a leader kind of in a way on trial in the legislature, which is, you know, kind of a very divisive factor, a a divisive event that can happen in a country. And I'm not sure if the majority of Americans really have the stomach for that at this point, given, you know, the partisan back and forth in such a highly toxic political environment in the United States right now.
1: Writer for the Washington political website The Hill, Julia Manchester, speaking to ABC News Radio's Steve Chase. Australia's most infamous serial killer, Ivan Malash, is back under corrective services guard at Long Bay Prison Hospital in Sydney South. It comes after the convicted murderer spent the last two weeks in the high security ward at the Prince of Wales Hospital, where he received treatment for a number of lumps in his stomach and throat. The 74-year-old is serving seven life sentences for the murders of seven backpackers in the 1990s. The New South Wales Corrections Commissioner, Peter Severin, says he hopes Malat will speak to police about other crimes before he dies. Roger Maynard wrote a book called Malat, The True Horror of the Backpacker Murders. He says it's unlikely that Malat will admit to committing any other crimes.
0: He's always uh, insisted he's innocent, he's always insisted the police got the wrong man, uh, that he was set up, that he was framed, Um, but the very fact that so much evidence Appertaining uh, to the crimes, uh, was found on his property and on the property of members of his family. You've got to say that there's a very, very strong link between either Malat and what happened in the Blanglow State Forest. So um, he's obviously guilty, no doubt about it whatsoever. Um, whether he did those other crimes that the, uh, the police want to question him about uh, remains to be seen.
1: How many, yeah,
0: sorry. How,
1: how many other unsolved crimes has he been implicated in over the years?
0: Well, there are various... Uh, uh, Various um, estimates, let's say. I mean, some say as many as 30, uh, others say perhaps five or six. Um, there was one particular incident uh, in 1988 uh, when uh, a young man called Peter Lecher was uh, found dead in the Genolan State Forest. Uh, he. Um he was killed in circumstances that were very, very similar to the uh, attacks on the seven backpackers, and it just so happened that Ivan Malat was working nearby as a road worker at the time. So there's a link there. But there are other cases too. You know, there's cases of suggestions that he was involved in the murder of a nurse in Newcastle, and this sort of thing. Uh, Malat always insists that it, 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 the, the police got the wrong man. It wasn't me whatsoever. Uh, but yeah, they, they, the, certainly the evidence always points to him. Whether or not he'll ever admit to it, I think it's extremely unlikely. Police have you know, tried to get information about him in prison down in Goulburn, uh, and he won't say anything. You know, he, he, his lips are sealed. He will go to the grave without uh, admitting anything. anything.
1: There's long been uh, suspicion that Ivan Milat didn't act alone in the Belangolo killings. Do you think that police will be hoping to put to rest some of these lingering suggestions one way or the other as well before uh, Milat dies?
0: Well, they've been hoping to put that to rest um, for the past 20 years or more now, Um uh, there was always that strong suggestion that Malat couldn't have killed these people by himself, particularly the two Germans, uh, the German couple. Uh, the, the bloke was a, a big, strong man. Uh, the, uh, his, his girlfriend was, uh, you know, very strong and tall. Um, how does one man overpower a couple like that? Um, so, you know, it's it, it's it's very it's very hard to believe that he did it by himself. But there are there are there are reasons he could. You know, he could have pointed a gun at one of them and told the other one to tie up the other one's hands Um, but there's always been the suggestion that he was uh, um, assisted by by an accomplice. Now, who that accomplice was has never been revealed. Uh, There have been allegations that it could have been another member of the Malat family, a brother possibly, but that's never been proven, of course. Uh, But one interesting piece of evidence that uh, uh, confirms that there could have been another person there is that close to where the bodies were found in the Belanglo State Forest, uh, there were often cigarette butts and um, empty bottles of uh, drink beer or alcohol. Um, now, it's a known fact that Ivan Milat never drunk, never smoked. Uh, so it suggests that there was another person there at the time as well as Ivan. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, so, so there are so many unanswered questions to this case, you know, although the probability is that Ivan Milat is almost certainly guilty, uh, there are still questions to be answered about, you know, did he do it by himself or were there others uh, involved?
1: Indeed, in the extent of the killing spree. Roger, before I let you go, uh, what did you make of the footage that was widely circulated yesterday of Malat being wheeled out of the hospital? I mean, he'd clearly aged, but did you think he looked sick, frail, on his last legs even?
0: He looked, he looked shocking, I thought. Um, I mean, I'd last seen photographs of him when he was taken out of the hospital after treatment for cutting off his finger. That was several years ago now. Um, and, uh, you know, he looked, all those words, frail, gaunt, thin, a uh, dying, man. Um, I mean, you you couldn't put it any other way. Uh, Certainly, it would suggest that he hasn't got much longer to live and he will almost certainly die in the uh, hospital wing at Long Bay Jail.
1: Author of the book Malash, The True Horror of the Backpacker Murders, Roger Maynard, speaking to ABC News Radio's Fiona Ellis-Jones. Much of the focus of Reconciliation Week this week has been on understanding and healing the wrongs of the past. But a Melbourne academic suggests the issue requires a more nuanced and complex approach. Todd Fernando is a PhD candidate at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. He's written about the way reconciliation is viewed by younger Indigenous Australians.
2: Reconciliation Week for me is about, you know, the wonderful conversations that we can have that drive, you know, Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians forward together. Um, It is about having those social impact conversations, but it also is about recognising the challenges that, that lay ahead for Indigenous Australians to get to a a, a place where we can be economically independent.
8: So do you believe, like a lot of people, that the wrongs of the past need to be acknowledged in order to move forward?
2: I do, but I don't think that is the main driver of the conversation that reconciliation needs to have.
8: You say that young and ferocious Indigenous Australians are grasping new opportunities for themselves and their communities. How have they been able to achieve that when previous generations have struggled?
2: I think I think one of the issues and you've touched on a really good point, one of the issues that uh past activists and, and past Indigenous leaders haven't had to face is the normalization of, of Indigenous young people going from high school into universities. And often when we come into universities we're placed inside of college systems that, you know, harbors Some of the most whitest Australian communities. And that's, uh, you know, that's fine, but it means that we have to connect with Australians on a a completely different level. And I think when we do that, we start to see the power that non Indigenous Australians have have grown and and the history behind that, especially with college systems. And so when Indigenous peoples are placed in that system, we start to see a different dynamic. sort of uh, occur and, and what that means is that when we do then graduate university, we're often in, in, in better positions because we haven't had to fight to get into the door, you know, that, that was done by, by previous generations, so for us we're able to just, you know, normalise that experience and go in without fighting. Now there are still things that we need to fight for when once we're there, but it, it is a lot easier.
8: Do you think Indigenous empowerment can happen without education?
2: Um, definitely not. Um, I think education plays a vital role in ensuring that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are, you know, are, are breaking cycles of disadvantage. We can't be sitting at home and, and in communities um, without, without valuing or receiving education. So I think, I think education plays a very important role in that.
8: We've seen successive governments go into Indigenous communities trying to get children to go to school. Have they taken the wrong approach in the past?
2: Um, I don't think they've taken the wrong approach, I just think it's, it's, it's one of those, uh, quite a, a slow journey and a slow process um, to, to get uh, younger, you know, especially uh, children, to, 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 to think about the normalisation of that. And we know growing families and, and a growing younger population, we're recognising that this is the path forward for us and we're recognising it in ways that don't submit us to assimilation tactics in that, in that way.
8: You mentioned there the age of younger Indigenous Australians, and I was surprised that you said 50% of the Indigenous Australian population is under the age of 23. That's quite a startling figure, isn't it?
2: It is, it, it is indeed. You know, what the medium age for us is 23 compared to 37 for non-Indigenous Australians. And, and you know, a lot of the rhetoric about Indigenous Australia is is you know occurs without people knowing knowing the full facts, and it's and and when we think about Aboriginal populations, and especially with fifty percent are under twenty three, we start to realise that, you know, that this is this is history being being produced in the present. It's 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 um yeah, it allows us to think about it in a completely different way.
8: How do you see the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians being closed?
2: Part of the gap is ensuring, um, the closure of the gap is ensuring that we have proper and stable uh, mechanisms in place to allow Indigenous people to succeed. And what we, are tending, uh, what we tend to see when success occurs for younger Indigenous populations is that, that success is shared. We often know that our journeys um, aren't alone, even though for many of us we are the first in families and communities to, to go to, to universities and, and to enter the workplace. Uh, but we share that journey. We'll build a network between each other, and it means that we can, we can share the knowledges that we're, that we're learning in different types of industries and different types of environments to ensure that those that are coming behind us are better
8: prepared. Are better prepared. Do you see a time where Reconciliation Week won't be necessary, and how far away might that be, if that's the case?
2: Well, look, I don't think reconciliation will ever be complete. I think reconciliation is something that we, we we should keep permanent because it does allow us to continue to acknowledge the history of Australia, and it's it's that acknowledgement of that history that allows us to continue to grow. I mean, we, we definitely would not suggest that that you know parts of Europe forget about the Holocaust. So I don't think we should forget about the reconciliation efforts here in Australia.
1: PhD candidate at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health, Todd Fernando, speaking to ABC News Radio's Mandy Presland. I'm Ali Crew, and that's all for this edition of The Weekly Post. Get your news now on
3: ABC News Radio.